Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about uh, my Isaiah debate. It's going to be a post-mortem review of my debate about Isaiah 40 through 48, Does Isaiah Teach Open Theism? Right out the gate, uh, I'd like to talk about a couple of the technical difficulties that kind of put me in a bad light, kind of, from the get-go. First of all, I was trying to find two different cameras so I could record the debate from my perspective, which would have been a great idea because their debate video audio is unsynced. It's it's basically trash, and uh, I, I didn't like it at all. I wasn't able to find my second uh, webcam, and so I had to settle with the one that was in front of me. It wasn't set up conducive to make me fill the screen, so to say. And it wasn't uh, conducive the software that they're using to project something on my green screen uh, behind me. And so probably software that I probably don't want to engage in again is uh, what they're hosting there. But that just uh, automatically puts me in a not so positive light because of just the framing where I look small, I look like I'm always looking up, I, I look hunched over. Probably something that uh, needs to be worked on for the next debate. My opening statement, I think, was uh, pretty much pitch perfect. I would do that again in a heartbeat. I'd maybe add a couple more points. Maybe, maybe in my interactions with him, stress a few different issues. But first of all, we're going to go take a look at the comments and see what kind of comments we have going on here, if they're generally positive or negative, or what's happening in these comments. Down here, we got Ruminator. This is probably the first comment of interest. Regarding the measurement of water, remember in Isaiah, God counts the water. And the Calvinist says that God doesn't count to know. God has this uh, ungenerated eternal knowledge from all eternity that, that uh, doesn't come from sources outside himself. And that, that's one thing I kept stressing over and over, that his depiction of God's omniscience is not depicted whatsoever in Isaiah. In fact, the text is explicitly against that. God counts water to the, know the amount of water on earth. Ruminator writes, regarding the measurement of water on earth, the Old Testament people believed the water came from the heavens onto the earth. So contrary to what the Calvinists thinks, they did not think that God made all the water at the beginning and it remained static. Regardless, the amount of water on the surface of the earth fluctuates, so it continuously needs to be measured. This is a, a correct statement. And uh, this amber person, uh, maybe possibly a female, she responds, Ruminator, it doesn't matter what people believed at the time. What does God's revelation say? That God created it right. And that's the problem with open theism. It's not even Christian. I, I, is this a response to his argument that he's making? That God does need to count the water on earth because the amount of water on earth fluctuates from time to time. It's, uh, it's not uh, an eternally set amount of water. And so even if you had present omniscience of all things and past omniscience of all things, that doesn't give you amount of water perpetually into the future. You're going to have to recount at some point. And that's what he's talking about here. That's his last statement there. And he appeals to the Old Testament people's belief in how God functions, which it's not a Calvinistic view. It's not a Calvinistic system. And so Amber responds with emotions. He's got uh, three little thumb up votes. And mine might be one. I don't know. But 
uh, it looks like he has generally good reception on this point. And look at this obfuscation. Tell me, did God foretell his incarnation, death, and resurrection? And did God bring it to pass? It, it's, it's almost like she didn't watch the debate. It, it's almost like she doesn't understand the open theist position. And she's just going, pulling up new subjects that, that aren't even relevant, that have very common, simple explanations and simple answers that it takes two seconds to think about. Yes, in Isaiah, the open theist position is God can do the things that God says he's going to do. This, this is literally Isaiah's point to the people. Isaiah is attempting to convince a wayward audience, a people who do not believe in God. He's trying to convince them that Yahweh is the true God, why? Because Yahweh can accomplish the things that Yahweh says he's going to do. This is not a Calvinist picture being drawn here where, where Isaiah, Isaiah and God by proxy through Isaiah is begging these people to believe in Yahweh, worship Yahweh, return to Yahweh. And how, how are they doing this? They're trying to convince them with arguments. They're attempting to reach them. This is not uh, Calvinism being discussed. This is open theism. People can freely choose to reject God if they so want to. But God has power. So in, despite people resisting God, God can force things to happen. Next, we have Will Duffy. And Will Duffy makes a point that I think uh, Mr. Madden's wife uh, agreed with at some point. Uh, I think it was on Facebook or something like that. Daniel said repeatedly throughout the debate that God knows the end from the beginning. Considering that the Bible never says this, this is a perfect example of reading the Bible through the lens of your theology. A declaration, Isaiah 46.10, is quite different from knowledge. Words matter. Uh, that's one of his uh, posts. Another post he has is, or does Isaiah 40 through 48 reveal a God who created all things, decrees all things, and does whatever he pleases? This is a quote. Daniel, did you start out the debate with a giant straw man? Open theism holds to the fact that God created all things and does what he pleases. I'm not sure why you put this into the beginning of your opening statement as the antithesis of open theism when it's clearly not as to a God who decrees all things. Where does Isaiah 40 through 48 state that? Let's let's see the reply to him. I don't know if I've read this yet. Uh, the seven... The seven? the 7 says this, An open theist could hold that God is essentially material and therefore didn't create in the out-of-nothing way. Ah, yeah, Calvinists could hold to that too. You know, it's I, I, I guess we could uh, imagine beliefs that could be held by our opponents that, I uh, guess that works. I don't, I don't know what this comment was. Will Duffy down below seems like he got in a little uh, conversation with the same individual. Yeah, we'll just kind of uh, skip that. This guy, Titus, if smirking is a demonstration of who won, Fisher definitely deserves the medal. And with that, I fully agree. So I have uh, a reply to that. I said, uh, seven medals, I should get seven medals. Uh, sometimes I smirk and I think for, for my benefit, my smirks come off as smugness. So typically male smiles come off as insecurity maybe, and they come off as non-threatening. But when I smile, it comes off as uh, it, it comes off as uh, superiority. It comes off of as me belittling and thinking less of other people, which which is the correct. Th if I could choose one of the two, if I could choose either the smugness smile or uh, non-threatening smile, I would pick smugness every single time because yeah, you do not want to be taken as non-threatening. 
You want to uh, speak softly and carry a big stick, as uh, Teddy Roosevelt said. He is a terrible president, but uh, that's that's an interesting saying. That uh, yeah, it, it works. I guess it works for this context. Will Duffy's just engaging with people further down, so we're gonna kind of kind of skip through that. Amber Talon, uh, same lady as above, she has this comment. Uh, In reference to the Babylonian text, the text stating that the decrees are non-resistant, yet the god was, that's called a contradiction. And it's a sure sign that it's not inspired. No, it's not. It's called normal reading comprehension. You could understand the thrust of those uh, texts. You could understand the hyperbole being used. You could understand the sentiment being communicated. You don't have to take everything woodenly literal. So example in the Bible, throughout the Bible, it says man is omniscient. Man can do all things. Uh, So man is not only omniscient, but he is omnipotent, um, omnipotent. He can do all things. This is just hyperbolic language, just giving us a general thrust of an idea. When God says that man can do anything that he imagines, it's basically saying that there's no limit to man's innovation, uh, ingenuity, and uh, he could achieve all sorts of, in the context, uh, harms and evils. It's not meant to be taken in unlimited fashion. And so if you're reading things in this weird way in which uh, hyperbole is not uh, an an idiom that's normal to our common speech. Yeah, you're going to probably talk like this and you're probably going to have to make up excuses as to why other texts who have uh, what appears to be competent writers who uh, have uh, normal intelligences, uh, why you're going to make up excuses why their texts are, are self-contradictory. Because you you really want your verses to mean what your theology is. It's, it's not a very good way to treat the text. It's not a very good way to treat Isaiah. It's not a very good way to treat these Babylonian texts either. Uh, we just we need to assume that writers within the same context have, have some basic, basic element of competency in their writing. I, th- I think that's a pretty good assumption. If, if that's not your assumption, uh, then uh, I can't help you there, and we'll, we'll have to part ways there. She writes, The open theist opening with an uninspired text and trying to compare it to the inspired text doesn't prove his position. Look at this special pleading. I love it. I love it. I love it. These these Calvinists, I don't know if uh, Amber is a Calvinist, but uh, they special plead all the time. These texts, just because they're about God in the Bible, they mean my special theology. If there's any similar texts about any other subject uh, anywhere else in existence, it doesn't mean the same thing. Uh, only the things that I really, really need to be about the things that I really, really want them to be about. I, th- this this is the way they do theology. Thank you, Amber. Uh, I love it. God acting on prayer. This is Amber still. Does not prove open theism. <laughs> uh, yes, it does. It, it proves that God acquired information from outside himself and based his decisions on outside input. God acting on prayer is discursive reasoning is open theism. Open theism is true if God responds to prayer. This is a fact. God has discursive knowledge. Discursive knowledge is denied in classical omniscience. Eber is 100% wrong here. Uh, she, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Uh, she probably needs to go study uh, Augustine, uh, Aquinas, maybe John Calvin a little bit, and uh, all those people. Uh, go study uh, Dozel, uh, uh, scholar of uh, God's unchangingness, God's immutability, God's simplicity. Uh, those types of people she should probably start reading. People who, they're not open theists, 
but they will explain to her the basics of her own metaphysics so that she's not confused. All right, we'll, we'll keep reading here. God acting on prayer does not prove open theism. Laugh out loud. God has decreed all things and God ordains the means of prayer is answered. It's not because God decided to act on it. There's some sort of spelling error going on there. Christ said that only those prayers that are in accordance with his will are answered. It, so God has this eternal will. And if people coincidentally pray in accordance with God's eternal will, then God answers their prayer? Is is that how prayer gets answered? That's not really an answer. That's just a uh, coincidence. It's it's a it's <laughs> a double coincidence of wants, we'll have to say, that God's not actually receiving input from outside himself. He's just acting independently. And then sometimes, randomly, maybe there's like two guys praying and one guy prays for rain and one guy prays against rain and then it doesn't rain. And so just coincidentally, one of those people were praying for God's will. And in that way, accidentally, his prayer got answered. But it wasn't a real answer. It was just uh, a happenstance. Happenstance. Amber Talon's view of prayer is prayer is it based on happenstance. Fantastic. Lovely. The fact is that scripture states that God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, and it does come to pass. All open theist philosophizing doesn't change that. I think this debate was about that. I think we were looking at their number one proof text for these facts, and it fell flat, amazingly flat, so much so that Madden had to concede that he didn't prove his case from the text in a Facebook in the Facebook conversation on that. Philip Hawkins seems to be my guy. Uh, I like him. Uh, Chris made the case that decrees in Isaiah are not these eternal decrees. Then Daniel says that doesn't mean there isn't a decree. Saying that just capitulates the point that the Bible does not teach an eternal decree. It's the same thing with the discussion on prayers. Well, if you already knew decreed all those prayers, it's not the problem. This is a, just a post hoc rationalization. Daniel is just appealing to some secret decree that isn't spoken of in the scripture. Here's the rub. In the beginning, Daniel claimed that Chris can't simply demonstrate that the text doesn't contradict open theism, but that's exactly what he tries to argue, that an eternal decree is compatible with the specific decrees in Isaiah. That's debatable, but it also capitulates the point that Isaiah doesn't teach anything about an eternal decree. There's simply no reason to think that Isaiah has an eternal decree in mind. In fact, I'm going to go one further. The fact that Isaiah teaches that God has discursive knowledge and makes decrees in time to people proves Isaiah was an open theist. He was teaching open theism. Maddox, his, his position is that, uh, Maddox, Madden, Madden, his position is literally that although Isaiah talks about God in a way that is identical with open theism, that uh, he has a secret theology uh, in, the, in the back of his mind that also is compatible with talking explicitly about God as if open theism is true. So this is, this is one of my shortfalls in this debate. I should have punched that point over and over until it bled. That he is agreeing with me that Isaiah teaches open theism. He just says that there's a secret uh, Calvinist system on the back end that's not apparent in the text. So he's agreeing with me. Madden is agreeing with me that Isaiah teaches open theism in this debate. It's lovely. I love it. 
Bonnie Johnson, she often comments on my YouTube videos. She writes, sadly, the opening of the video is immersed in pagan symbolism of Baal. I was, I was using that as a reading comprehension example. It's something that's not controversial, that no one has real strong opinions of, and, and uh, you're not going to take a ludicrous stance against the text because you just, you don't care. It's like when you come to the Bible and you're Calvinist, you really care if it speaks your theology or not. But if you turn to a different text in a different context about something you don't care about, you're going to be a little bit more, maybe a little bit more objective. And I think that uh, me starting with that in the questioning periods really shut down basically all of Mr. Madden's arguments. He wasn't able to argue that the text definitively meant his theology. When I showed, not only does similar language absolutely not mean that in the normal reading comprehension of those texts, but also within the text, there's uh, eternal or there's decrees to people in time in specific contexts. And then here's JR. I think he's uh, our last comment. And he says, oh, wow, the new decrees would be new to the people being spoken to at the time, not new to God. And I responded to that. I said, you would say that the text doesn't bear it out. God declares new things. God also declares things to people from the beginning. These declarations are time limited in the text. There's no hint of eternal secret decrees that underline this entire text. And uh, he has some responses that uh, I, it looks like I read them. He says, no point in debating you on this matter. Okay, fantastic. This is what these people do. Uh, they run away at the first uh, hint of uh, any resistance. I got three upvotes on mine. And so it seems to me from the responses here that I have more supporters than non-supporters in this debate. It doesn't look like there's any necessarily changed minds in this debate. There's only 500 views on this debate, but I think it went fairly well. So let's look at his opening statement. We will fast forward there and just kind of talk through that as he talks. All right. Uh, first of all, I also would like to thank everyone for being here, both the Davids and also Chris. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to uh, engage this debate and uh, just look into what exactly Isaiah was saying in these chapters, because I think that we're going to find it's going to be far different than what we just heard. All right. So let me begin by laying out what it is each of us needs to do tonight to win this debate. I'll start with the burden of proof. In this debate, Chris is taking the affirmative position, and as such, he's taking upon himself the burden of proof. That means that it is incumbent upon him to prove from the text of Isaiah chapters 40 to 48 that the author of those chapters was teaching open theism. So, yes, he's true in a sense, but uh, also consider the fact that this is their go-to text for proving their theology, their metaphysics. And does he do that? I, th I think this debate is a great example of how their own proof texts do not stand on their own when given basic scrutiny. And this is the position he retreats to, and he doesn't prove uh, his theology from the text. I love it. Remember the topic of tonight's debate. Does Isaiah 40 to 48 teach open theism? That being the case, it's not enough for Chris to demonstrate that the text could allow for open theism. There's a big difference between a text allowing for a particular doctrine and actually teaching it. His burden tonight is to demonstrate that the writer of these chapters intended for his audience to understand God in open theistic terms. There is no question that these t uh, chapters tell us a lot about who God is. Okay, I, I like that. He sets up uh, the conditions for the debate. Uh, my, my, uh, my goal here is to show that uh, the writer of Isaiah intended for his listeners uh, to see God in an open theist light. I, I, th I think we did that. I think Mr. Madden, he agreed with me that Isaiah does that, but Madden says that Isaiah has a secret 
system underneath it all. I, I think I think I achieved the goals of this debate. I do believe I won this debate. And how he acts in human history. The question is, do these teachings reveal a God that is open, that gains knowledge, and who is sometimes thwarted in his efforts? Or does it reveal a God who created all things, decrees all things, and does whatsoever he pleases? It will be my goal today to demonstrate from Isaiah the latter. In order for us to understand what is being communicated in the details of these chapters, it will be helpful to lay out a general summary of the text as well as some of the major themes contained within it. I'll start with the overarching theme. Overarching theme being that Israel can take comfort in God. Chapter 40 begins with the word comfort. And that's really the goal of these chapters. God was seeking to comfort the people of Israel. This comfort will be achieved by Israel recognizing who it is that they serve. Is the God who called them into existence truly able to deliver them from the power of his or with the power of his outstretched arm, or will he be as the worthless idols that so many of the nations look to for help? So who's God delivering them from? Uh, in Calvinism, God delivers people from himself, right? So God eternally decrees all things. And so God uh, declares that uh, Babylon is going to take Israel into exile. And then he's going to save them from the thing that he forced them into, that uh, he decreed meticulously. So how does deliverance work in a Calvinist model? You are delivering people from God. Whereas in open theism, God could use people like the Assyrians to to generally, uh, as a general tool to make his will, enact his will. But in the Assyrian example and in the Babylonian example, both those nations overstepped their bounds and had to be punished as a result. And so the deliverance is actually a real deliverance. It's not... Uh, it's not God trying to fight himself. It's God fighting individual free agents who overstep their bounds, who are not doing God's will. Uh, supporting theme number one, God's word is sure. A major theme of chapter 40 is the contrast between the, two, uh, the sure nature of God's word and the temporary and frail existence of mankind and all that he does. This is critical to the comfort of Israel because it gives credence to the prophecies that are delivered throughout these chapters. For instance, starting at verse 3 of uh, chapter 40, we have the famous prophecy that foretells John the Baptist. Uh, verses 3 through 5, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And we all know this uh, particular prophecy. It's referred to by all four Gospels, and uh, all of them say that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of this prophecy. So how could it be that the Lord has inspired these words some 700 years before the birth of John if he did not know what would happen in the future? So let's let's take that real quick. So if if it's an actual prophecy, and the New Testament likes to use a prophecy in a in a parallel way, and so when when Matthew says something's fulfilled, basically he's saying that there's an Old Testament event that kind of mirrors the New Testament event. It's it's not a prophecy that's going on here. It's not a fulfillment of prophecy. It's just a cyclical, right? It's the same events happening over in a identifiable pattern. It's it's an Old Testament event that points to the truth of a New Testament event. But pretend it was prophecy. We will we will operate on his premise. God can do things. This is what we have to devolve into when we're debating with Calvinists. Calvinists think that uh, down here in the comments, uh, we didn't read it, but the guy here says to Will Duffy, here we go. Down here, this is uh, Troy Smalley speaking. With respect to Isaiah 46, 10 through 11, God, knowing that he will summon a man to do his will, not only shows God knows his future choice, but man's future choice. Or at least there's a man who will have such a choice in the future. Will Duffy, he responds, it means that God knows what he will do in the future. It does not mean he knows which fish in the bottom of the ocean will be where at a certain date and time in the future. 
and this uh there's seven th- three seven the the servant the servant i'm gonna go with the servant how could god know what he's gonna do he may know what he will probably do but not what he will actually do if he foreknows his future decisions then he can know the amount of fish in the bottom of the ocean Will Duffy, I don't follow your logic. How does foreknowing his decisions mean he can know how many fish will be at the bottom of the ocean? The servant. My point merely states that if God could know beforehand future free choices of human beings, then he could know the future amount of fish in the ocean. Why could he know one but not the other? Are fish populations less predictable than human actions? And then Will Duffy goes to mechanism. So this is their literal argument that if God doesn't know if God knows one thing about the future, then he must know everything. It's uh, it's the fallacy of composition. They, they can't imagine a world in which someone knows future free actions of individuals. And we'll see how true that is. We'll see how that true that is come this next election because I, I got all my money on a certain candidate. And uh, I, think, I think I'm going to come out uh, doubling my money by predicting in mass future free actions of human beings. That's not hard to do that. It's not hard to find one person to do God's will. Except for except for sometimes I think it's in Isaiah, God does search for someone and is not able to find someone. God searches and does not find in some context. This is something that the Calvinist position has to wrestle with. But God generally could search over and say, hey, there's this uh, Judas guy. He seems to be a crafty, wily guy. He might fit my purposes, so I'll pull him into my inner circle and use him as a tool uh, to enact my will. That people can be predictable. And if those people change, uh, God God celebrates over the lost sheep. He doesn't uh, throw his hands up in frustration. Oh, all his plans are dashed against the rocks. Remember, John the Baptist, that God's innovation outmatches your own. So when you think that God can't accomplish the things that he says he's going to do, God has ways. He could He could raise new children of Abraham from the rocks if every single child of Abraham is destroyed. God is smarter than you. So you claiming God can't do something isn't, uh, it, it, it's not going to be an effective argument against open theists because we believe that God is capable of doing some things. Unlike the Calvinists, open theists believe that God is capable of doing some things. Calvinists do not believe it. Either God controls everything or God is weak, powerless, and he can't do anything. God can't make a rooster crow three times if God doesn't control everything. This is this is Calvinist logic that we're dealing with here. Isaiah answers this question. In verse 7 and 8, after telling us that all flesh is as the grass of the field, it says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Israel can rest assured that the Lord will care for them because his word is forever. Supporting theme number two, God is creator. So eternal is often used of all sorts of beings. There's eternal angels in the Bible. There's eternal life that we're given. There's eternal kingdoms. And typically, eternality is given conditionality. We have eternal life as long as uh, we're following God. If we turn away, we get destroyed. The eternal kingdom is eternally David's, eternally Saul's, as as long as they don't fall away. Uh, The kingdom can be taken, although if they stay true, 
they kingdom would be eternally there. So look at the language and how it's used. Is it being used hyperbolically? Is the eternal language conditional? Uh, these are things that we have to consider. We can't just look at a text and just read our own mechanism, read our own reading into it without considering other views. God's word is eternal. So what does God's word is eternal mean? When God in the immediate context is promising to save Israel out of captivity, that, that seems that to be the, the immediate context that God will do those things that he said he's going to do. Yes, Syrian captivity, did that uh, quite work out? That's, that's another question. God promised to lead the Jews out of Assyrian captivity did that or will that could that ever be accomplished maybe not maybe not so sometimes sometimes god like just like in nineveh god says something's going to happen god says he's going to do something and that thing does not materialize they're going to have to wrestle with those facts they're going to have to square those with their belief that god's word doesn't fail and of course they have mitigation mechanisms that uh, I, I i'm not going to accept them i don't think that they're very good handling of the text it seems to be more more the point in Isaiah that God's dedication is to Israel in this specific context, and it's something that God is going to make happen despite despite uh, people attempting to thwart him. Remember, the people in the text are a wayward people that God is trying to call back to him. This is antithetical to Calvinism. The author of Isaiah points Israel to the fact that God is the creator of all things. This is also important to their comfort because it demonstrates that God is meticulously uh, involved with his creation. The goal in all of this is to show that he is a God mighty to do whatever he puts his hands to. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 40, Isaiah begins a list of rhetorical questions regarding the creation. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked up the heaven with a span, and closed the dust of the earth with a measure, or in a measure, and weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance? Madden doesn't believe God can do those things. God, Madden doesn't believe that God can change. All those things sound like discursive things. All those things sound like actions in time. He does not believe God can change. God is immutable. God is simple. God doesn't have discursive knowledge. God doesn't count. God doesn't count to know in Madden's theology. He doesn't believe that his own proof text for his own view. Mr. Fisher would have us to believe that God is gaining knowledge as he measures out the waters in the palm of his hand or marks off the heavens yeah. with a span. Yes. Nowhere in this text does it imply God learning anything or gaining knowledge. God counts, but uh, it's it's for no purpose whatsoever. And so it's just like a predestined action that's uh, pointless. So if I say I'm going to go count how many chickens I have, let's say I raise chickens. I don't, I don't raise any chickens, but uh, you, you're raising chickens. You want to go count how many chickens you have. No one, no one in their right mind would hear so, someone say that, that I, I'm going to go count my chickens. And then they would think, well, he already knows how many chickens he has. He's just doing this pointless uh, act uh, that uh, is superfluous and, and doesn't have any real value counting is a specific action for a specific purpose and actions and doing things for reasons are both discursive, both in time, both changes. God changes in the text explicitly. Oh, I love it. I love it. God's hand is the standard against which the waters are measured and his arm span is the standard against which the heavens are marked off. When we measure something today, we often use something called a rule or a ruler. And why do you think it's called that? It's called that because it is the sovereign. So Mark Smith in his uh, book, in his books called Where the Gods Are, it's about the bodies of God. He talks about this text and 
And he believes that what's going on in this text is that the Israelites are uh, conceptualizing a superhuman sized body of God where God's hand is just really, really large. And so he literally, literally counts the water in the palm of his hand. Madden, he's, he's, he's bringing a new perspective to this verse and it's his own perspective. And he doesn't prove it from the text against probably more common sense alternatives, such as a figurative counting. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's using a physical hand, but uh, uh, there, there's a counting mechanism happening in the text or, or the literalist mechanism in which God has an actual hand, as Mark Smith writes in his book, Where the Gods Are. But uh, Madden has their, his own thing where it's, it's like a rule or something or a standard. Uh, you're going to have to, you're going to have to explain what that's communicating to the audience explicitly. Against which we compare other things. It's the same situation here in chapter 40. God is a standard and his creation is calibrated to him, not the other way around. The chapter goes on to contrast God to all things, both men and idols. All men and all idols are counted as dust and as nothingless. The author points to the creative power of God. It was God who created all things and he did it alone. Verse 14, he had no counselor. Uh, no one made him understand. No one taught him knowledge. Mr. Fisher will seek to separate out the attributes of God as though this passage is all about power and not knowledge. Verse 26 is a key in understanding how God's knowledge and power work together such that God does all that he has decreed. Verse 26, chapter 40, lift up your eyes on high. So what does understanding mean? I think uh, I think we cover it in the debate. I think we cover it in the back and forth. I don't think it's about knowledge. I think it's about uh, processing ability that uh, God can do things. God can understand things. God doesn't need people to lead him, him around. Like a lot of kings, they're going to have advisors and the advisors are going to, I always think about uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, I personally don't think the movies were very good. Uh, I had read the books previously and the movies just really didn't li uh, live up to it. But that's neither here nor there. I probably get uh, all sorts of hate for that. But there's a scene in that where there's this advisor and he's like this little old guy and he's leading the king around and telling the king what to do. I think that's what the verse is talking about, that God's not like that. God, God is a powerful God that makes decisions independently. God stands up for what he believes and he's not going to be led around by his minions. His minions serve him. His decrees are firm. Everyone's going to be doing God's will. There's going to be no thwarting God's will. God does whatever he pleases. God sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. In Madden's theology, God does nothing. God is eternal, simple, changeless, outside of time. God doesn't do things. This is their theology. It, it's not biblical theology. It's not biblical theology. Anytime he talks about God in a discursive manner, he is undermining his own conception about God. God does things discursively. God, God figures out things discursively. God engages in conversations with individuals in these very passages. And see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He does not create them and then respond to their existence by naming them. No, he determined their name and their number before they were created and then brings them all out, calling them by the name he gave them and not one is missing. His power enables him to that might be reading into that verse a little much. carry out all that he purposes. This is knowledge and power working together to accomplish this. Supporting theme number three, God is in charge of human history. In chapter 41, the Lord will continue to offer comfort to Israel. He comforts them by appealing to his ability to direct all of humanity, humanity to do what he has decreed. 
uh, verse two of chapter forty. <laughs> Except for in Isaiah, when he's pleading with Israel to return to him, this is this is the context of Isaiah forty through forty-eight. God is pleading with a wayward Israel to return to him. These people are thwarting God's will. God laments throughout the text about uh, their stubbornness and their refusal to return to him. They are thwarting God. Uh, I love it. I love it. Isaiah is definitely, definitely an open theist. I think the context is uh, fairly striking to anyone who wants to think about the text for two seconds as compared to the classical models of God. Remember, these individuals compartmentalize their beliefs when they're reading their text. If they want a text about immutability, they'll turn to something like uh, Malachi 3 and, and uh, read their immutability in there and just not understand their other attributes are still at play where they think God is timeless and simple and doesn't change and is impassable. And the whole context contradicts that. So in Isaiah, they want something where God's decreeing all things, but God's talking to people in time. God's lamenting that people are resisting him. God is uh, filled with rage and emotions. God is extremely passable in that context. And the whole context screams against their holistic picture of who God is. They compartmentalize their theology when coming to their proof text. They, they really want single-use proof text. This one proof text proves this one aspect of my theology, and then we'll turn to a different proof text for a different aspect of my theology. It seems to me, it seems to me that open theism is the only uh, view that takes a holistic view of God in any context uh, that treats him as as a person, as an individual with individual th thoughts, desires, passions. There's inconsistencies even in character where God might do things in different uh, ways, in different circumstances. Uh, it might look to us as unfair, as Job calls out God. What, what God's doing is unfair in Job's mind. Throughout the Psalms, people think, what God's doing is unfair or unjustified. And, and people recognize this in God, the character of God, this tension, because that's what, what, what human beings are. This, this is our personality. This is what people are. We are made in the image of God, and God is a personal God. God has these same character inconsistencies that we do. Within the Bible, it's, it's not me just uh, making up things about God. It's me reading the Bible and looking at the character that's being portrayed, the character of Yahweh. And this is pointed out even by secular scholars like Christine Hayes, who I think I referenced in the debate, as a neutral third party who looks at the text to figure out who this character is, the character of God, the primary subject of the Bible. He is a character. He is a person. He has a personality. This personality is not always 100% consistent in, in uh, behaviors, in uh, his actions, in his responses to situations. This is how people act and behave. God is a person. Only open theism takes God in a holistic sense throughout the Bible. 41, who stirred up from the East? Uh, one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. God does things. Yes, yes. Only open theism believes that. God does things. He makes them like dust and his sword like driven stubble with his bow. He answers this question in verse 3. Sorry, that may be a typo. Verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. This is a continuous theme throughout these chapters. Israel can take comfort because their God is the one who decrees what will happen in human history, and he carries it out by his power. That sounds like open theism and not Calvinism.
This is really what the court case is all about between the idols and God of Israel. The question at the heart of it is, whom among us is able to decree the future and then carry out that decree so that what he has said beforehand comes to pass as it was? Uh, you see that? I do my thumbs up here. And then in the background, in my, my other person does the thumbs up too. It, yes, we, we agree with that point. That, that, is, that is what's being described here. That's, that's predicted. It's open in chapter 41, verse 21, God calls on the idols to set forth their case. It will bring a challenge to them. This is similar to what Chris already read, so I'll run through this real quick. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, to declare to us or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Mr. Fisher will say that this isn't a test of knowledge, it's a test of power. I say the two cannot be separated. In order to exercise power in this way, you need to have knowledge of how you... If God doesn't have knowledge, uh, God can't do anything. And just like that guy below, if God doesn't know the number of fish in the bottom of the ocean at some future date, God can't know that he's going to make some guy do something at some future date. This is how they operate, that these things can't be separated. Uh, I don't buy it. I, I, I just... I don't think that's a persuasive argument. You're, you're not going to convince me. I, you, you might convince people who already agree with you, uh, but uh, they might be a lost cause anyways. You will apply that power. You need to have an outcome in mind before you put yourself to the uh, task uh, you're carrying out. Look what the verse says, verse 22. Tell us what is to happen. That's knowledge. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them. That is knowledge coupled with wisdom. Not only what happened, but why it happened and what will be the outcome. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter. Knowledge again, so that we may know that you are gods. This is the test. What happened in the past and why? And what will happen in the future? If you can tell us that and it comes about, we will know that you are indeed gods. This challenge is brought to the idols again and again. Chapter 41, uh, verse 26. Who I'm not really hearing anything I disagree with. I might disagree with him of his take about what is precisely is meant by knowledge. I think that it means generally what we think when we know things about the future that, uh, you know, Matt Slick, he always uses the example. I said, I know I'm going to go to my car, but uh, there might be a meteor that comes and hits me. But so it's, it's not absolute knowledge, but I do know that thing. And so my knowledge doesn't cause that thing from happening. Well, it's, it's not absolute knowledge then. It's not the type of knowledge that you are ascribing to God. Uh, Madden is ascribing an 100% knowledge to God that's unfalsifiable and can't be subverted. Fatalism, even God is fated in Calvinism. Also in Arminianism, God is fated. The things that God knows God will do, God can't do other than those things. It is fatalism. This is the type of knowledge that they are advocating. Open Theus. We advocate normal knowledge that uh, normal people use when uh, they use the word knowledge. That, that's the type of knowledge that we affirm. Declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right. Chapter 43, verse 9, who among them can declare this and show us the former things? 44, 7, let them declare what is to come. 48, 14, who among them has declared these things? It's all about knowledge. This would all be a pointless court case unless the Lord could indeed do these things. Unless he did know the future, not passively as though he is peering into the future, but actively because he is decreeing the future and causing it to come about exactly as he has decreed. Uh, verse 4, chapter 41. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. Behold, the former things have come to pass. This is 42, verse 9. 
uh, have come to pass and new things I now declare. Calvinists tend to read verses and uh, just assume it means their theology. I haven't heard anything that uh, specifically counters the open theist view of the world and in his uh, proof text. He, he hasn't explained how those are exclusively his. It's like this guy the other day that uh, we're talking about what does eternal mean? And he assumes that anytime the word eternal is used, that it means his specific theology. You can't just assume these things into the text. Uh, you you got to look at uh, alternative readings of those texts to see which one is most likely. And if you're not doing that basic work, uh, then uh, you're just operating based off of assumptions. And it it's it's not serious theology that we're, we're encountering. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Uh, 4312, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and I am God. And 4313, also henceforth, I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand, I work, and who can turn it back? 448, fear not, nor be afraid, have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses, is there a God beside me, there is no rock, I know not any. And then he goes on to give a very specific example of how he is doing this very thing that he just described. In chapter 44, verse 28, he calls Cyrus by name, the one whose right hand God will hold and lead through battle to deliver Israel from the hand of Babylon. And not only that he will deliver them, but specifically the purpose of their deliverance will be that they will rebuild Jerusalem and lay the foundation of the temple, something that we all know happened in history. When considering all these verses, as well as many more that I do not have the time to cite, I don't see how anyone really could believe that the intention of the author of Isaiah was to communicate that the God that Israel should take comfort in is one who is open to changing his mind or learning a better way. No, the writer was comforting the nation of Israel. He's, he's trying to frame the debate there. So is that uh, what open theists claim? That God's primary attributes are changing his mind, being fickle, uh, being shown a better way. Uh, no, it, it seems like Isaiah is depicting a powerful God who who don't don't take no nothing from anyone you know that's the idea of god being portrayed by isaiah and open theists can affirm that with 100% accuracy and think that god is uh, open in the future he's not faded right god is not faded god does things in time god talks to people within the text god in the text laments that these people are still rebellious and thwarting his will in the text but god can in spite of all this be strong be that confident leader and uh, bring his his ideas his plans to fruition through sheer might job talks about this explicitly job uh, complains that god uses this might makes right strategy in history where god's might just overrules everything and god agrees with him in the end according to david Klein's, a scholar of job who who translated job and wrote the word biblical commentary on job that's what he describes as going on in job job is complaining that god operates on a might makes right basis and god agrees with that a very open theistic concept it's not a calvinist concept where god meticulously controls all things from all eternity to his greatest good never can be thwarted uh, never can interact with history never can think in discursive thoughts it's not what's going on in isaiah if god thinks about things before he does them if god does that uh, uh, even if he doesn't get outside input open theism is true discursive knowledge discursive thinking discursive acts all prove open theism Isaiah was an open theist. There's there's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Your proof texts are just proving 
open theism. Israel with the fact that their God is the God who rules over all of human history from creation through to the coming of the Messiah prophesied in chapter 42. He is the one who decrees all things and he is the only one who possesses the ability to make them come about precisely as he is foreordained. And so that's that open to seeing statement. I think I think it'd behoove us to go back and and listen to my opening statement as well, because my memories of it are very fond. I, I think I did a good job. I just think that the the video, the technical framing of my side of the debate probably wasn't in the best light. I, if, if I were to do it all over again, I'd make sure that my technical setup, my camera angles, all of those things were immaculate. And I'd probably insist on a better platform that didn't have all this lag and uh, technical problems that we experienced here. So let's go back to my opening statement and then uh, see what I say. I don't know. That sounds like fun, right? Being more tonight than just, uh, you know, is open theism true, which is kind of like, it was a very general topic, but these guys really wanted to narrow it down, down right to Isaiah 40 through 48. So we've got, does that teach open theism? I was happy to give the guys more leeway, but this, yeah, I, I love that. I love the debate topic. I would do it again in a heartbeat if anyone wants to debate me about Isaiah 40 through 48. I, I think we got this. If if we steal this proof text of theirs from them and turning it and turn it into an open theist proof text, these guys are dead in the water. And we should do this with every single one of their proof texts. Talk about how their proof texts fundamentally undermine the picture of God that they actually believe. Remember, they compartmentalize all their proof texts. Their proof texts are single use only to prove one aspect of their theology. When it's looked at holistically, it counters the ideas that they have about God. So any one of their proof texts can be done in the same way. We can look at their proof texts and use their proof texts against them. I love Isaiah 40 through 48. We need to define our terms. William Shedd, famous Calvinist systematic theologian, describes omniscience in this way. The divine knowledge is intuitive as opposed to demonstrative or discursive, it is not obtained by comparing one thing with another or deducing one truth from another. It is a direct vision, simultaneous as opposed to successive. It is not received gradually into the mind and by parts. The perception is total and instantaneous, complete and certain, as opposed to incomplete and uncertain. The divine knowledge excludes knowledge by senses, gradual acquisition of knowledge, forgetting of knowledge and recollection of knowledge. This is from his Dogmatic Theology. It's a Calvinist textbook. Contrary to this, open theism is the view that God can obtain knowledge discursively, gradually, or from outside himself. If I show one instance of God acquiring knowledge, open theism is true. Examples of this would be God acquiring knowledge from sight, God deliberating and then coming to a conclusion, God declaring things in the past, God making new decisions, God testing to know, God counting, God having new experiences. And did we show any of those things in the debate? And did Madden successfully or successfully contradict that and show that that's not what Isaiah is teaching? Or did he affirm that is precisely what Isaiah is teaching, but he just had a secret system underneath it all. Uh, I love it. I love it all. It's God responding to man, God showing emotions. In all these examples, God's knowledge changes. Keep this in mind when you hear any of my opponent's proof text tonight. Are his proof texts arguing ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge, or are they self-defeating? Tonight's debate is not about what I believe. Tonight's debate is not about what Mr. Madden believes. Tonight's debate is narrowly focused on what the author of Isaiah 40 through 48 believed. For convenience, we will call him Isaiah. 
My goal tonight is to look at the text to see what it says. When reading these passages, the one question we need to have in our mind is if the text is written from the point of view that includes ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge within God. It's not enough to show that God knows some things about the future. I know some things about the future. Even if God knows all things about the future, if God gained that knowledge at any point of time, open theism is true. We have examples of acquired omniscience in other ancient Near Eastern religions. It's not enough to show that God knows all things. The, me the mechanism, the mechanism is what matters. How? How does God know? If God acquires from mechanisms such as counting, open theism is true. It's not enough to show God declaring some things about the future. I declare things about the future, things that happen. How does God declaring things about the future show ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge? Declaring sounds discursive. It's a decision and action. Declarations prove open theism. If it is a new declaration, all the better. Uh, look at this. I, I, I think I think I eviscerate his position. I think my opening uh, statement to, was uh, perfect. I, I would not change a thing. I, I love how this is going. I point out all sorts of things that he doesn't consider acquired omniscience. It's it's just rejected out of hand by uh, individuals who come to the Bible who believe in omniscience. Oh, yeah, God knows all things, but uh, he must have always known all things. Why? Because that's what I just assume about God. Uh, acquired knowledge is acquired omniscience is not something that uh, they could handle in their system that they they can rationally consider. So, for example, in Genesis 18, where he doesn't know what's going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and sends to go check, and then omniscience is described after that fact, they, they can't conceive in their mind a model in which God at some point in time didn't know everything, and then at some point in time, decided or acquired knowledge of all things and then then he has omniscience right it doesn't work in their model they want a specific definition of omniscience and they think that their proof texts prove that without considering alternatives it's definitely not enough to point to some vague phrase god's understanding is infinite and just assume it means a very specific third century philosophy context determines meaning king david is said to know all things the prince of Tyre is said to know all secrets believers are said to know all things phrases out of context really don't tell us much in regards to this particular phrase in isaiah infinite is the same phrase used for the amount of grain that joseph collected and understanding is an entire entirely entirely different attribute than knowledge in the semitic mind it is better understood as craftiness the ability to perform God can do things. My goal tonight is not to be a theologian, but someone with competent reading skills. We need to look at this historical document and use normal reading comprehension skills to understand it. There's no special pleading. There's no, oh, the author coincidentally just secretly held all the same theological beliefs as me. If our argument cannot be made from the text using the normal latitude of word meaning, it is not an argument. On a final note, I don't have to answer why the author holds the particular beliefs that he holds. I don't have to justify his system of belief. The debate is about what the text actually says. What we care about is the text, not moralistic fallacies. So let's turn to the text. Isaiah 40 introduces us to Deutero-Isaiah. It transitions from a third-person narrative in chapter 39. It begins with a declaration of God's greatness. There is a list of praises. Interestingly enough, ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge is not included in the descriptions of God. What is included is God's ability to count them out. 
I haven't listened to this in a while. This, this is this is excellent. Uh, uh, I commend myself. You know, sometimes you like write something and then you're like reading it later. And you're like, wow, this is really good. And it's like something that you wrote. And uh, it's just like you're reading a text afresh. So this is this is a, a fresh experience for me uh, listening to this opening statement. I, I think it's excellent. I, I give this guy this Chris Fisher guy, whoever this guy is, uh, two thumbs up. Uh, excellent job on your opening statement. Water on earth. God counts to know, which would be odd claim if the author holds to ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. Another interesting verse in chapter 40 is verse 21, which says, man knows things from the foundation, from the foundation of the earth. Surely, Surely, if this verse were about God, it would be one of my opponent's proof texts for ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. We can use this verse to understand how na language naturally operates. We normally speak in generalities and hyperbole, but the only time the Christian wants to read these statements as metaphysics is when they're talking about God. Imagine that. The thrust of Isaiah 40 is about God's ability to perform. God can create. God can destroy. God can scatter. Compared to God, the nations and the other gods are nothing. Thing. Verse 27 tells us a common belief among Israel. Forget even generic knowledge of the future. They didn't even believe. Israel did not believe that God had familiarity with present events. Isaiah is fighting against this perspective. Notice how Isaiah argues. He doesn't argue like a modern theologian. There's no lessons on metaphysics and treatises on divine attributes. Instead, Isaiah argues that God is powerful and these people will be judged. That sounds fairly similar to debates I have heard between open theists and Calvinists. The open theist literally has to convince a skeptical Calvinist that, yes, God can do some things. In Isaiah 41, a divine trial begins. God puts himself on trial and invites people to judge the evidence. When reading the Bible, we... Oh, yeah, we need, we need to really focus on that. God is putting himself on trial, and who's the judges? The judges is people. This is not Calvinism going on here. God is being judged, putting himself in a position to be judged by other individuals. This is not divine Calvinistic sovereignty of all things going on here. He's putting himself in some sort of subservient position in the text. Uh, I love it. He's putting himself on trial. We have to keep in mind the entire text is advocacy. Israel does not have to worship Yahweh. Yahweh competes with other gods. Isaiah is not an exercise in speculative theology, but a concrete argument which can be evaluated to see if Yahweh is the true God. What happens is a courtroom scene. Yahweh argues, paraphrasing, you have seen me declare what I'm going to do in the past. Uh, you have seen these things come true. And then that's pretty good evidence that the things that did happen, those are the things that I did because I said I was going to do them before the fact. In this way, in this way, not, not everyone could just claim after the, or anyone could claim after the fact that whatever happened, their God did. But the fact that I declare it beforehand, that's evidence to prove, prove that it's my acts. So let's turn to Isaiah 48.3. The former things I declare of old, they went forth from my mouth, I announced them, and suddenly I did them, they came to pass. So God has plans, and God brings those plans about. Because I know that you are obstinate, your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from old. So God's not declaring in, the, in, the, in a normal Calvinist mindset. There's like an eternal declaration from all time. No, God declares things to people. I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image, and my mental metal image commanded them. 
you have heard. Now see this. Will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that have that you have not known. So he's declaring new things. We could see in in the history of Israel how God's declarations work, who he's declaring to, at what point of time, what's the process. We have technical examples in the context. They are created now, not long ago. This is not an eternal decree. Before today, you have never heard them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. Notice a few things about the text. God declares the end from the beginning. The end are the results that he's declaring. The beginning is when he decides to do these things. God decides to do things, he tells people about them, and then he does them. He tells them for the purpose of convincing them that God is the one doing these things. God is not doing some eternal decree. He is declaring new things to people in real time. He is not declaring everything to ever happen, but specific power acts. And we see a good example of the scope of the power act. This declaration is about God's goals. And even in achieving these goals, there is a wide latitude of options that's available to God in achieving his goals. All of this is antithetical to ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge. Notice that God is making real-time decisions and acting as things change. This is discursive knowledge. Notice the declarations that God makes. He makes as he decides to do new things. He tells Israel from the beginning. Israel knows from the beginning. Notice God is eager to separate himself from the false idols. These idols in Isaiah cannot see. In classical omniscience, God cannot see. God, Remember, go back to our definition from our Calvinist systematic theologian. God cannot see. Watch tonight the proof text used by my opponent. Do they actually teach ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge, or do they teach the opposite? Remember, open theism is true if God acquires knowledge from sight, Isaiah 44, 9. God deliberates and then comes to a conclusion, Isaiah 41, 26. God declares things in the past, Isaiah 41, 26. God makes new decisions, Isaiah 42, 9. God tests to know, Isaiah 48, 10. God counts, Isaiah 40, 12. God has new experience, Isaiah 42, 10. God responds to man's actions, Isaiah 44, 25. God responds to man's prayers. Uh, Calvinists always say, oh, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. God responds to man's prayer, 41, 17. God shows emotions, Isaiah 43, 24. God's actions fail to achieve their intended results, Isaiah 41, 26. There are no proof texts arguing ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal, and unfalsifiable knowledge in Isaiah or the rest of the Bible. In fact, the way the author writes about God precludes this idea. Isaiah is an open theist. Thank you. All right. I love it. Uh, I was smiling through the whole thing. Uh, I'm in love. There's a big heart going on here. Uh, genius, genius acts, uh, Mr. Fisher there. I don't know. But uh, I wish I wish my delivery was a little bit smoother. I wish I probably would have taken, I don't know, like some Sudafed or something so that uh, my nose would be less stuffy and I could probably get my words out in a more fluid manner. So I, I wish the presentation was a tad better, but otherwise, uh, my one mistake in that was one of my proof texts were incorrect. I cited the wrong verse, but uh, that could be updated if I release the, the transcript of my opening statement. But otherwise, otherwise, uh, five out of five stars, five out of four stars. So it's uh, like over 100%. That's what I'm going to rate myself. Mr. Madden, I, I feel like his opening statement was putting himself in uh, in a defensive position. I, I don't feel like it was offensive where he's trying to prove actual 
concepts from the text against open theism, it felt more like apologizing for the text, saying here's what the text says and here's my reading of this text and, and my reading of the text is my theology. That's, that's what it felt like to me. Uh, may, maybe, maybe I'm a little bit biased here. Maybe uh, some of my own opening statement is doing that, but uh, I'll have to have third parties tell me where I am blinded in my own intro. But I think I did pretty good. I think uh, the, the key fact to take away here is that ungenerated, non-discursive, eternal knowledge that's ungenerated and identical with God's essence from time eternal this is the key to understanding classical omniscience. If God ever gains any information, if he has any discursive thoughts or discursive actions or interacts with anyone in any fashion, open theism is true. This is the story of the Bible. Open theism is true. I, I think that debate's over. I think I think the real debate is over the nature and character of God's uh, open theist omniscience. I think that's the real debate, not whether or not this classical notion of omniscience is taught in the Bible. I think that is dead. All right, now we're going to kind of stop there for tonight. Maybe maybe we'll we'll go through the back and forth a little bit later, but uh, that there could have been improvements in that area as well. I I didn't know that we were going to be that limited for time, and we see that we see that play out in this debate where I, I'm taken aback by how how shortly they want to cut the debate. So maybe we want to look into doing uh, debates that are more like two hours long rather than an uh, hour and 20 minutes. It's probably supposed to be an hour debate, and I kind of probably postponed it an extra 20 minutes accidentally uh, for, for not following along and understanding that they're trying to cut me off so soon. And I probably should have stressed that his theology is basically Isaiah teaches open theism, but Isaiah has a secret Calvinist system underneath. That was his argument. So I think I won the debate. I think he admitted that Isaiah 40 through 48 teaches open theism. Anyways, thanks for listening. Comments and questions, put that below. Or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Uh, again, thank you for listening. <laughs>